God bless and welcome to this week's episode of Family Discussion. We are so glad that you've joined us today. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Jesus teaches us in the Gospel of John that the world will know that we are his followers by the way that we love one another. And yet it seems like the love of Jesus is less and less evident in the way that we speak to and about one another, especially when we disagree. So, in the hopes of recapturing the brother-sister love that Jesus has won for us, we are calling a family meeting. For the next half hour, let's cut through the noise and look at the issues without slander and malice. It's time for a family discussion. God bless and welcome to another episode of Family Discussion. My name is Marcus Ortega, and as always, I am joined by the brilliant Lisa Spencer. Lisa, how are you today? I'm doing wonderful, Marcos. How are you? I was saying, I'm trying to cool down because uh, it's like it just started October, and we had a high of like 97, and I don't know what in the world is going on, but, you know, I'm just still feeling like I'm in Texas. So, <laughs> See, I, I feel for you because up here in New York, we didn't even crack 60 today. Oh, I'm so jealous. So uh, I am enjoying I am enjoying this. I'm looking at the weather forecast and 60s from here till the end of my maps or weather. App, I am so, jealous. Um, yeah, it's good. It is why I love living in the north. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So today we are following up on last week's conversation that I hope everyone had a chance to hear uh, when we were joined by doctor and professor and pastor Sean Michael Lucas. Um, He is a leader in the Presbyterian Church of America, and he was gracious enough to join us here and talk about a doctrine called the spirituality of the church. And he laid out kind of the historical foundations for that doctrine. He explained the way that doctrine has been used and misused throughout church history. Uh, we got a little bit into current events, but not really. Um, we really focused primarily on the the way the doctrine is developed, how it was misused, and why it's such a controversial doctrine. But really, um, what the doctrine is saying is that the church doesn't meddle in the affairs of the world unless there's a moral obligation to do so. And when we do, we do so in a particular way. And all of this comes from chapter 31 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. So this is a, a doctrine that comes out of Presbyterianism. Today we're going to broaden it beyond that, but, but here's where it comes from. Um, chapter 31, paragraph 4. Synods and councils, which is kind of standing for the church, should consider and settle only ecclesiastical questions. They are not to meddle in civil affairs which concern the state, except in extraordinary cases of modest petitions or in an advisory capacity prompted by religious conscience when requested by civil authorities. So, when the state comes to us and asks us a question, we give our opinion. Um, When we see a moral issue that needs to be addressed, we... Um, give a modest petition, which is a place of humility, um, and the church saying, hey, dear state, we believe that this is the right way to go, and we believe that the state either needs to go in this direction or needs to change course because they're going in the wrong direction. Um, So that's really what, what the spirituality of the church says. Our main focus are the things of the church. 
Um, it is the it is the proclamation of the kingdom. It is sharing the gospel. It is discipleship. It is spiritual growth. It, it is the things of Christ. But as the things of Christ intersect with the things of secular states, we get involved. Um, and so that's what last week's conversation was about. This week, Lisa and I are going to talk a little bit more about this doctrine, but Lisa, how are we going to approach it today that's different than what we just did? Well, I think because, um, you know, Dr. Lucas laid a really good foundation in terms of what the genesis of the doctrine, which, of course, is, you know, for our listeners who aren't Presbyterian, um, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith is a biblically um, informed um, and formed, um, you know, confession that, you know, basically systemizes what the, what scripture says. Um, you know, it's not, we, we don't hold it to the same authority as the Bible, but at the same time, take it serious because we're looking at what has the church always believed? What should the church believe? Um, so, you know, I think it's easy to kind of dismiss, well, that's a Presbyterian thing. Well, if you look at the conversations that are going on today in terms of, you know, asking this question, what is the church's involvement in social issues? I think, you know, just one based on, you know, how Dr. Lucas explained the way, not only the genesis of the doctrine, but the way that it has been employed and the inconsistent ways that it has been employed, I think is very instructive for answering the question that's being asked today of what is the church's responsibility towards social action, especially in light of, you know, the conversations that have been front and center these last few years regarding social justice, you can throw immigration into the pot and saying, you know, because there are, you know, on one hand, there are folks are saying it's not the church's business to get involved in social affairs. Well, well, this is the same thing that, you know, folks like Dabney and Thornwell were saying about slavery, that it's not the church's business. But then you look at you know, um, areas of abortion, of prohibition, and saying, well, yes, we absolutely have to get involved. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think is instructive for how this doctrine applies more broadly than Presbyterianism, it hinges on what Dr. Lucas brings out in his article. And just a reminder for listeners, this is an article in the Reformed Theological Seminary Journal I believe it was from 2015 because this was a precursor to the racial reconciliation um, overture that was passed, eventually passed in 2016. But the title of the article is Owning Our Past, the Spirituality of the Church in History, Failure and Hope. And so in that he makes the, you know, he makes the case for the fact that the, you know, that based on this doctrine um, that silence was demanded on, and here's how he states it, matters of political and social policy, except when they touch on issues of morality. And it seems to me, when you look at through history, the way that this doctrine is, you know, has been employed, 
and even asking the questions today that, you know, when you say, oh, well, you know, the church is not to be get involved in the, you know, in, in political questions or in, you know, or in these issues of, of, of social, you know, in uh, these social issues. Well, I, I think that that's it, it can be a cop out, maybe. But once you frame it in the context of a moral obligation, I think that that really changes the scenario and it really raises the question, well, what is a moral obligation, you know, to which the church should respond? Yeah, and and that's where I think a lot of the disagreement comes into play Mm -hmm. because um, what we understand to be a moral issue or a moral obligation can vary um, and sometimes can vary based on our partisan convictions. Um, and this is where we want to get, we want to be really careful. The, the application of this doctrine of spirituality of the church that says we get involved in secular affairs and civil affairs by moral obligation has to come out of scripture. Like scripture has to be the thing that says this is a moral obligation, not, um, our own partisan preferences and our own partisan positions. So let me, let me give you an example. Um, I have particular understanding of how I think uh, economic policy should be in this country. Lines up a lot with the left. And listeners who've been listening for a while know that I lean more left and Lisa mean, leans more right, which is why we're having mm-hmm. these conversations. <laughs> um, it, it, is, it is true, 100% true, that the Bible says we are to care for the poor. I don't think anybody... Any no thoughtful Christian is going to say, ah, no, we can just totally ignore the poor. How we do that, though, is no longer in the line of moral obligation. The moral obligation is to care for the poor. But my particular way of doing that is not the moral obligation. That we care for the poor is the moral mm-hmm. obligation. So that means that I, I am fully with my rights as a pastor, for example, to stand in a pulpit and charge and call the people that I am called to shepherd to care well for the poor. I am not going, I I am not allowed to stand up there in a pulpit and argue in favor of the death tax. You know, it's just, that's not the moral obligation. Um, And I think what we can do is we can blur the line and say, listen, because I have a, an opinion, a political opinion, maybe even a passionate political opinion, we can suddenly say, well, therefore it's moral obligation. No, no, it's not. Um, If we're going to say this is, we are morally obliged as Christians to speak to an Mm -hmm. issue, we better come with the weight of Scripture and not just our own partisan opinions. Right. And yet, unfortunately, this has been an area where I think, you know, partisanship does begin to, you know, infuse itself into the question. Um, because how dare you, Christian, support policies that, you know, that are detrimental to vulnerable populations, you know, that don't adequately support the poor to my satisfaction, you know, and I'm going to take an extreme example and say, how do we, you know, how do we even look at income inequality? Um, 
where, where, and so we have to ask the question, where in scripture does, do we have a moral obligation to, you know, to ensure that society has an equitable distribution of income? I'm sorry. I don't see it. You know, is it a nice, is it a nice sentiment? Now, if there are laws in place that put undue burden on the poor, that's where I think we have perhaps a moral obligation. You know, and one instance I can think of is, um, you know, when, um, when it comes to uh, infractions such as, you know, tickets, um, you know, those kind of legal issues, like parking, like par- tickets, and like parking like tickets. And when there are, uh, you're right. So let's say, you know, I'm a person of, of, you know, very limited income and I get parking up, you know, of course the, the flip side of that is, is, well, why are you not obeying the law? But let's say, you know, I get into the situation where I have this, you know, this undue burden of, you know, having to pay parking tickets. Well, I can't afford them. And so now a fine is placed on me that, you know, it's almost like when you have like when the bank charges you fees for overdrawing because you don't have any money. (laughs) Like, look, I didn't have that much money to put in the bank. Now you're going to charge me even more money that I don't have. Um, So it's kind of it's one of those kind of situations where, you know, it raises the question, you know, is there, you know, is is there equitable treatment with those who have no means to, you know, to take care of these kind of obligations? Well, you know, I, I think that that's something that's something worth looking at when you look at our legal system and say, you know, is there, you know, is there an undue burden on those with limited means? Um, you know, I mean that you can, you know, once you get into the weeds, you can, you know, get into all kinds of, um, differing responses to, to you say, but I think that we do really need to be careful in terms of how we apply what a moral obligation is to a partisan preference, you know, $15, what, 15, uh, $15 an hour wage, you know, is there a moral obligation for a person who works a minimum wage wage job to receive a $15 an hour wage? Well, that might be your preference based on your political ideology. But I, I'm going to really challenge you and ask, you know, for the person saying that that's a moral obligation to say, well, I don't, I don't see where that really aligns with scripture, you know, because the Bible talks about the rich and the poor. You know, I mean, Jesus references this between the rich and the poor. Paul references this. So there is this idea you're going to have economic disparities, you know, in any society. So to say that in and of itself is immoral, I think that that's where we really need to ask the question like, okay, so is it, you know, is it your preference or is it a moral obligation? Well, and I think, I think that is, um, that's an important distinction that I think we, we fail on 
some of the time. We make our preferences moral obligations. I think the other side of this where we miss a lot is we ignore moral obligations because of our preferences, Mm -hmm. because of our partisanship Mm -hmm. and our political preferences. Um, Now, there are a couple of issues um, that I'll just highlight, too. There's a a couple that the church has, I think, gotten right. Mm -hmm. And I I want to let's start Uh there with where the church has gotten it right. I think the church is right to speak out against abortion as a moral obligation. We are morally obliged to speak on behalf of the unborn. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a moral obligation. I think the church has uh, maybe not always spoken in a way that's well that, that's helpful, mm-hmm. but they've taken seriously the moral obligation. Like we can always do it better, but at least we're doing mm-hmm. it right. right. So let's, at least we we cross that hurdle. Um, I think another one, for example, um, when Christians spoke out against the destructive nature of divorce, mm-hmm. right? And and I think that the church was right to speak out and say, listen, um, we have a moral obligation to speak against um, kind of this no-cause divorce type of, of situation where you could just divorce anybody for no reason. And, and we can see the way that the family has been eaten alive by rampant divorce over the last 50 years. Um now, there's, so there's a couple examples. Mm-hmm. I wonder, Lisa, if you can identify maybe a couple other areas where the church has done well on speaking to moral obligations, but also I think we should identify where are some places where we've missed it and maybe are currently missing it. Mm. Well, um, I think in terms of, well, I mean, you know, clearly the, you know, the divorce issue. And I want to say even the, and I know this comes with some controversy, but even the marriage issue in terms of what constitutes marriage um, and that being between a man and a woman. I think that the church is right because if the church is to have a prophetic voice in society, I think the church is right to speak up about what, um, you know, about, you know, marriage in terms of what's codified in our laws. Um, you know, of course, we can't expect secular society to mirror and mimic uh, biblical standards, but to the point, to the extent that we can actually influence moral good, I think that we we do have an obligation to do that. Uh, so I kind of, you know, I resist the argument that says, you know, the church has no place in dictating marriage. I think we absolutely do. And to the extent that we can influence lawmakers into resisting this call to, you know, make marriage anything that, you know, we, we think it should be, um, you yeah. know, and, and, and unfortunately, I know that the way that our society is going uh, you know, just in terms of what is acceptable from a sexual ethic perspective, uh, it's certainly running headlong steam against a a biblical ethic. But I think I don't think I think that we still have an obligation to speak where we can. I, I yeah, and I I want to just kind of also just just remind the listeners we're speaking from an American perspective mm-hmm. here. Um, the global church isn't debating human sexuality this mm-hmm. way. Um, so we look at an example like um, our brothers and sisters in the United Methodist Church. Um, 
the reason that the United Methodist Church might be heading towards a church split is because the global church will not shift on the issue of marriage and what is marriage between a man and a woman. It is the church in the West and the church in the West alone that is pushing in this direction. The rest of the world is like, you guys are crazy. This is not, no, this is not the biblical ethic of marriage. Um, and so I think when, when we say that the church has done well here, there are sections, of course, of the American church that has not done so well, but globally we've seen, no, nah, the church is held strong pretty well on this particular mm-hmm. issue. And of course, you know, so looking at where the church hasn't done so well, I think that you know, Dr. Lucas gave us a good dose of that uh, in our discussion last week. Well, I should say you all's discussion because I don't really say much, but <laughs> you all's discussion. <laughs> and you could have. It was the weirdest that you just sat because there and listened. Just, you know, you guys were on a roll and he is so knowledgeable <laughs> and he just had he just had so many good things. See, I'm like, you know what, brother, I'm not going to ruin that. You just go ahead. You just go right ahead. <laughs> well, it was it was a good conversation. And our listeners should know that it was because Lisa reached out to Sean that we were able to have that conversation. Conversation. So thank you, Lisa, for right, that. No problem. Um, but yeah, yeah, Sean brought up a couple areas where right. we have failed historically. Right. And so, you know, the issue of racial injustice. And I'm speaking of looking at it historically, where you have not only a cultural ethos where that injustice was embedded into the culture, but it was codified in law. You know, I mean, the fact that we even had to have amendments to the Constitution to do what the Constitution already said is to me insane. You know, it's already written in our Constitution. All men are created equal. Um, in, in, in why we had to go through these, these hoops, you know, um, invoking the voice of the federal government to make sure that civil rights were in place is is crazy to me but that is how strong that those disparities were and you know when you look at how much that impacted the church so you know guys like Dabney and Thornwell who had no qualms about slavery so we ask this question right what is the what is you know what is the moral obligation of the church well they didn't even see it as a as an issue of morality thornwell is still talking about the extolling the virtues of um slavery in the 1870s oh lord like after the civil war thornwell is still extolling the virtues of slavery so i mean it, it is hideous some of the writings yeah. and the, the justifications of slavery. But that doesn't stop because it continues right into the civil it rights It continues movement. so right. We had this, this really, this beautiful period of reconstruction where you actually see, uh, you know, folks who were former slaves, uh, folks who were, who were denied uh, status of uh, equal citizenship begin to thrive. And what happens? You have this uprising of, again, it's, it's you know, this cultural fab- fabric uh, that comes into play. And then by 1877, uh, when federal troops were taken away for the protection of black citizens, then that's when, you know, you have the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. You have this uh, implementation of Jim Crow. Uh, it wasn't really better in the, that was the South, but it wasn't much better in the North, where you had 
you know, I mean, we're talking about a, a cultural, a codified system of injustice. So by the time you get to the civil rights movement and looking at these decades upon decades of injustices that there were um, folks in the church and, and Sean, uh, Dr. Lucas brings this up beautifully in his book for a continuing church where there was this push against theological liberalism. But unfortunately that could not be separated from the realities of this injustice. So any uh, association with, uh, with racial justice, you know, for equal opportunity, for equal rights, for civil rights was unfortunately conflated with this theological liberalism that was intruding on the church. So it was all packaged in one. And unfortunately, they couldn't untangle that. Uh, so what you had were people who were actively resisting. And the resistance, guess when the resistance really stepped up? After Brown versus Board of Education. Um, the idea that, that there, you know, even the churches would be integrated was unfathomable in the minds of many. And so churches stayed segregated. That was just a reflection of the segregation that was going on in, in broader society. Uh, so, the, and again, it's just like in the issue of slavery, people really didn't see this as a moral issue. And that was, I think, um, you know, played into this resistance of the church not intermeddling in civil affairs, especially when you had the civil rights movement and those activities really ramping up. Yeah, I think I think the issue of race is obviously still one that, you know, 50 years, 51 years now after the assassination of Dr. King, we are still really not sure how to address the problem of racism in the church. Um, unfortunately, this is an area where the church should have been in the lead, really driving the, um, the abolition of slavery. The church should have been driving the abolition of Jim Crow. The church should have been driving um, the end of redlining and uh, making sure that we, we don't have such disparities in things like incarceration rates and stuff like that. The, the church should have been driving for racial justice. And far too often what we see in the United States is the church is reacting much later than society is on a moral issue. We, we have given up our prophetic voice on this issue. Um, and, and even in areas where we do have a prophetic voice, sometimes we speak in such a way that doesn't actually help the situation. So I think, for example, the way that the church um, did treat the LGBTQ community for so long um, was not a way of bringing the, the kind of redemptive narrative of scripture to folks. It was just a way to, they, they, we were just, we were just destroying people. You're we just coming after them. And, and it was, it's, it's ugly and hideous. And it's um, this blind spot in the church where we're not able to love well at times. And um, so I think, yeah, race is one that is certainly an area where we have not spoken up the way we should. Um, I, I, there's 
a couple other issues that come to my mind. Okay. And and before um, you go on that, I just wanted I yeah. just wanted to speak on that and maybe push back a little because I think what's yeah, happened I think what's happened today is that we have this long history of you know this injustice and we have you know we look in the, into the mirror the church and say you know what we didn't speak up when we should and so now we kind of there's this tendency I think to kind of take all of that history and have it bear on the present as if the same level of infractions are occurring. And that's where, you know, I've been, especially the past couple of years, really pushing back and thinking, well, are, are we really, are we really that far off? in terms of what we're doing in our churches, in terms of what we're doing on a society. Because when we look at the civil rights era, we are talking about, we are talking about systemic injustice, that there was injustice inbred into the institutions, into the cult, into the fabric of society that denied equal treatment to people. And I have to ask the question today, okay, so to what extent is that happening now? To what extent is it happening in our churches? To what extent is it happening in its, in our society? And I think that we really need to be careful in terms of, you know, not not allowing that weight of history to bear on the present, but look at the at the present for where it is now. Yeah, I, I hear you. So this is this is um, one of the areas where we definitely do have mm -hmm. a disagreement, and we can talk about this a little okay. bit. Um, I agree with you. I think any objective person or someone who at least tries to be objective, right? There's no all of that. But we we are not in the same place we were in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. We're not. Things have gotten a lot better. Um, I do think though that we are still dealing with the remnants of the of Jim Crow and really the mentality of the of racism on a systemic level today. I, I think we see evidences of this. So I'll, I'll give you um, I mean I'm trying to think of, of ways to talk about this this isn't just gonna um, uh, unnecessarily insult folks. Um, I'll give you this example. 2015, in the PCA, the um, first racial reconciliation, um, what was, you're in the PCA, what was the actual, the thing that Dr. Lucas led? Yeah, it was, was it well, I mean, it was, it was, it was folks just referred to it as the racial reconciliation overture. And of course, that, the that overture, gets, right. you know, turned, right. you know, the document gets turned into an overture that's presented to the General Assembly. It right. was presented, now he and Ligon Duncan, you know, worked on putting this together with the mm -hmm. input mm -hmm. of um, several African American pastors. And mm -hmm. it was basically to acknowledge the com complicity and the silence in the age of the civil rights movement that, you know, so it was right. basically taking ownership of that past. 
Now, it did not pass. And, and, and here's what happened. In 2015, it was introduced to the General Assembly. And as you, you know, as you, as you know, uh, that in, invokes a discussion, a floor discussion about why or why not this particular overture should be, should be passed. Well, my understanding, and this was before it was streaming was involved, um, and I'm looking at the feedback of folks that are there that are almost kind of like live, you know, I don't Facebooking, live blogging, you yeah. know, that. But there were a number of pastors who it, it really invoked a lot of soul searching, a lot of repentance um, and looking at the ways in which even, I don't know, implicit bias really exists uh, in the church. So the overture, so it was re, it was tabled into the next year to 2016 as overture 43 and that passed. And that of course involved, invoked the study committee because we like study committees. Um, love study committees. But here's, here's the thing though that that's mind blowing to me. Okay. Um, we're talking about four and three years ago. Mm-hmm. We're not we're not talking about, um, you know, the 1980s where the PCA has been around for 10, 15 years and, and they're realizing, you know what, we made a mistake and we need to repent. We're talking 2015, 2016. And the PCA is finally saying, hey, we did something wrong here. It took the Southern Baptist Convention a really long time to come to that same place to be able to say, hey, we we were wrong in this. Um, you look at the um, so so. When I talk about the the residue of that area that's still there today, it's things like um, looking at our seminaries and seeing just how few black professors we have in um, what we would say orthodox seminaries. Um, they're just there's still very few of them who are able to get teaching positions. My alma mater um, has no uh, at least. To my knowledge, there may be one, there may mm. be one person of color, no African-Americans, mm. no black professors at one of the premier reformed institutions. Um, we didn't read a single black theologian as required reading. Um, we didn't read any people of color as required mm. reading. Everyone who was required mm-hmm. was white. Um, now, there are other schools they're making better strides at this. You look at a school like Reformed Theological Seminary, they're making better strides. Mm-hmm. But who are the presidents of our institutions? Who are the moderators of our presbyteries? Who are the heads of our conventions? Who are, um, who are the pastors in our churches? So I have a pastor friend um, who shared with me, I'm not going to name him and I'm not going to name his denomination, but um, he left uh, a relatively large church in order to take a, his own kind of lead pastor role. And um, he, he felt that it was time to move on. And he put out 20 to 30 resumes. Now, this guy has had years of experience at a relatively large church and wasn't looking to be the pastor of the next big mega church down the block. He's just regular pastor gig. But because of his, his ethnicity, he got a grand total of zero callbacks and is now working um, outside of his denomination in order to pastor, because nobody would give him a pastorate. I'm talking in the present tense. 
not in the past mm-hmm. tense. Um, and so these are situations that I think, you know, that's a problem. That's a today issue. Mm-hmm. And, and this is this is not the 1960s, but the residue of the 1960s is still mm-hmm. there. I mean, um, the, the kids who were screaming at the little ones who were integrating the schools are right now looking towards retirement. I mean, we're, we're not talking that long ago. And so while I understand that we, we have to recognize the strides we've made, we still have a moral obligation to point out racism as it still exists on a systemic level. Okay. Um, and, and I think we're getting better at it. I also see anytime somebody brings up racism, um, you you kind of you kind of flinch because you know they're about to get the tar beat out of them on social media. Well, that's not an anomaly. Like that's you bring this up and you're immediately branded a liberal and you get hammered by elders and pastors in their churches on social media. And so I'm looking at that saying if you're all are elders and pastors and you're speaking to folks this way. Um, then we still have a race problem in the church, and we still have a race problem in the country. Uh, and, and there's a whole ton of statistics that I don't have in front of me that we could look at with the, the disparity in um, African-American teachers in school districts, the disparity in um, you know, who runs the major companies in the country and how many people of color are CEOs in this country. Like there's the, while we may have changed some of the laws, some of the structures are still there. And those are the things that we have to keep kind of knocking at and hitting at. And I think the church does have a role in that. I don't think that's just individual Christians. I think the church can look at a racial injustice and say, that is not okay, and we need to call that out um, as moral obligation. Mm -hmm. You know, and I would say, and especially looking at the framework of our, you know, where our laws are today in terms of anti-discrimination. I mean, you cannot be hired in a company and not have to go through, and especially if you work for the government, have to go through some kind of diversity training, you know, cultural, cultural sensitivity. And it's really becoming so pronounced that it's, you know, I, I, I'm not crazy about the term politically correct, but to the extent where, you know, a lot of the language is policed in the, you know, in the general culture, in terms of when you can say this, but you can't say that. Um, I do think that there is a greater awareness, um, not only just in terms of our, you know, where we are culturally, but, you know, that which has been codified, and it's not, you know, that's and and found unacceptable, you know, bigotry, and prejudice, just unacceptable. So I hear you in, in, in saying that, you know, it wasn't really that long ago where we had separate drinking fountains. It wasn't that long ago when, um, you know, even when the Civil Rights um, Act was signed into law. But at the same time, um, I'm saying, you know, sometimes maybe, maybe that t- just takes a little time because certainly we're not where, where we were. Um, we're not. And, and I think one thing that happened um, that I, uh, has shaken a lot of folks and have made them more conversant on this issue and more willing to go there. Um, the, uh, I look back at Trayvon 
at Trayvon Martin as as kind of a um, a moment in time where the conversation took a shift, and more and more and more and more people are recognizing the problem that's there, and the more people recognize the problem that's there, the more likely it is the problem's going to change. And so I, I look ahead at the next 50 years, so 100 years after Dr. King, and I think we're going to be so much better than we are right now. I, I really do. I believe that, and I, I pray to that end, because I know a lot of younger folks are really starting to push on this, and you're right. It is, um, it's not just anti-discrimination uh, anti, uh, policies and companies and stuff like that. It is um, young men and women and, and generations coming up who abhor the idea of discrimination and are doing everything they can to make sure it doesn't happen. But I tell you what, um, I, I hesitate to bring this up, but just a couple days ago, um, my daughter was made fun of for her ethnicity at oh, school. Lord. And so these things aren't going away all the way. Right. There's still always going to be this. And so there's always an opportunity for us to say, hey, there's a better way forward. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't think that this is the only issue where the church has done a bad job or has missed mm-hmm. the boat. I think there's a couple other issues out there that I just kind of want to bring up and say, hey, do we need to talk about this more? Um, we mentioned this briefly in our last episode as well. I do think climate change is something we got to talk about more. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a moral obligation to creation. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there can be disagreement on how we actually tackle this mm-hmm. issue. Um, there can also be disagreement on the priority of issue, right? For, so for some folks, they're like, yeah, it's important, but it's not as important as X, Y, and Z. Uh, okay, there can be legitimate disagreement among Christians on that. But I do think we have to look at the way we treat creation. I remember the, the scoffing that happened when the um, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission put out a document on um, how we treat animals. Hmm. Well, that's a good thing for the church to think about. We need to care for animals. We need to care for God's creation. He loves his creation, and we are called to be stewards of that creation. So we need to love it as well. Um, and so I think that we want to take more of a uh, more of a thought on environmental issues, on climate issues, stuff like that. Um, the, another one um, that I think we want to look at is how we understand... Um, kind of the atrocities that are happening around the world. We have a tendency to only care what's happening around the world when it's really massive. But um, we also are willing to kind of, as a church, not speak out on an issue Mm -hmm. because, oh, well, that's foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sorry. It is a moral obligation for the church to stand up and say, hey, what's happening in Yemen right now is wrong. Okay. That is wrong. And I understand that we're allies with Saudi Arabia, but the church needs to say, hey, that right there, the starving out of an entire nation is, is wrong. And we have a moral obligation to say that. But I don't know how many churches are talking about Yemen right now. Mm, um, not mine. <laughs> yeah, not, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just not something, we don't talk about foreign policy because we say, oh, well, that's just totally um, a, a state issue and not a church issue. Well... I'm not convinced that's always the case because the church is global. We are a kingdom um, that goes around the world. And what happens in other parts of the world matters to us, whether it's our brothers and sisters over there or not our brothers and sisters over there. We should care about suffering around the world. 
And I think we have a tendency to be very um, America focused Mm -hmm. as the American Mm -hmm. church. We want to think more about what's happening with brothers and sisters around the world. Um, In my denomination, Andrew Brunson uh, is a pastor who was arrested and um, held in Turkey for a couple Mm -hmm. of years. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and praise God he was released. Um, But there are our brothers and sisters who are in prison right now. How often are we talking about that? And how, how much are we pressing on our elected officials to do something about that? Um, I think there are certain things that are moral obligations that we just don't talk about, we don't think about, because maybe we, we think they're too big or they're just too hard to deal with. I do think we're missing the boat on some of this mm-hmm. stuff. Well, with that said, I think we could probably talk about this. Keep, we could probably keep going. <laughs> <laughs> no, on what about is six but episodes I think, in a row or something but like I that. But I think that you know. But I think that there, you know, it's it's some good stuff for us to think about in terms of looking at you know when we make choices about what we think the church should be involved in versus what the church shouldn't be in. What should the church have a prophetic prophetic voice in that which concerns our moral obligations? And I think it really has to hinge on that. Um, once you make it political, once you make it social, then you start, I think you can start getting into preferences. You can start kind of picking and choosing, but it, you know, but we really have to ask the question, what is moral? What is just? Well, and I think we have to be careful, right? That we don't make everything a moral obligation, because if we do that, then the other thing that can happen is we're just going to get ignored. Mm -hmm. Because we're, we're the people who are always hysterical about everything. <laughs> you think? <laughs> but if we only use our voice where Scripture calls us to use our voice, then our voice is more effective. Right. Um, you know, and, and so I do think there's other issues we can talk about down the way. Um, you know, we're not going to discuss this because we're, we're way past our time anyway, but I'd love to know when the Second Amendment became a moral obligation. Hmm. Um, you know, stuff like that. I, I'd like to know... Um, where we have drawn some of these lines in a partisan mm-hmm. way that aren't necessarily a kingdom way. Okay. Um, and so let, let's talk about that down the road, because I do think that, especially as we move towards 2020, we're going to want to talk about some specific political issues and the way that Christians disagree on those issues. We can use, for example, the Second mm-hmm. Amendment. Why are there Christians who are in favor and why are there Christians who mm-hmm. are not? Um, why are there Christians who are in favor of like Medicare for all? And why are there Christians who are not? Um, we, we are in a place where we've taken everything to the extreme of moral obligation mm-hmm. that uh, if you take the other side, you are now immoral. Right. Um, and I want to I get into those issues. But, you know, that's a 2020 thing. Maybe we can do that down the road. Okay. Sounds like fun. <laughs> but until then, yeah, there's a long, long in the future tease for our listeners. Um, but until that time, thank you so much for being with us today. On behalf of Lisa Spencer, I'm Marcus Ortega. We're so glad you're here and hope to see you again next time. God bless. Well, thank you again for joining us for this week's family discussion. If you'd like to learn more or catch up on episodes you missed, head on over to our home at reformedmargins.com. There you'll find great content about a whole host of issues that we pray will bless your relationship with Jesus, including articles written by Lisa Spencer and me, Marcos Ortega. 
Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Your hosts are Marcos Ortega and Lisa Spencer. Our producer is Larry Lynn. Family Discussion is hosted by Podbean and recorded with Audacity. If you like what you heard today, it would be a great help to us if you gave a quick review and rating on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite content so that you don't miss our next family discussion.